Hello, fellow boneheads. Welcome to the first bonus episode of One Flesh, One End, a Locked Tomb reread podcast. I'm Bailey. And I'm Cabria. And we're going to be stepping away from our reread to do something a little bit different with this episode. We were lucky enough to get to interview someone quite close to the books recently, and now you get to hear that conversation. We didn't try to drag too many Nona spoilers out of our source, but we did manage to get some tiny no-context clues to ponder while we wait for the book to arrive. So before we get into today's special interview, we just wanted to let you know that we're going to be talking about a Nona the Ninth poem. And if you're not familiar with it, this is a poem from Nona the Ninth that has been released already by Tor.com Publishing. It was sent out in their email newsletter. We published an annotated version of this poem on our Twitter and Tumblr pages, both of which are at one flesh, one pod. We'll be linking to these in the show notes if you want to check it out. But if you haven't had a chance to read the poem yet, this is how it goes. You told me, sleep, I'll wake you in the morning. I asked, what is morning? And you said, when everyone who fucked with me is dead. When everyone we loved has gone or fled, that's morning. Empties the same as clean. Let's put this first draft dream of mine to bed. In that appointed hour, I'll turn down your sheets. I'll kill the light. Lie down beside you, die, and sleep the night. This time will be the time we get it right. Forgiveness not so hard, nor anger long. Our graves will be less deep, our lies less true. You held aloft the sword. I still love you. And it ends on the final word cut off at just the letter Y. So let's get into it. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by a very special guest for our bonus episode. Carl Engelaert is the editor of the Lock Tomb series, among many other books at Tor.com Publishing. And while we've promised not to try to wring any Nona spoilers out of him today, we're really <laughs> excited to chat about some of the glimpses that Tor.com has already shared from this book, as well as his overall experience working on the series so far. So hi, Carl. Thank you for being with us today. Hello. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So happy to have you here. We thought it would be fitting to start out by talking about the Nona the Ninth poem that was released because that was actually how we all got into contact with each other and, and started talking about you coming on this podcast here. Bailey was the one who did an annotation of the poem and released that on Twitter and that caught your eye and, and, and started some really um, fun discussion with some other fans as well. But before we start talking more specifically about that annotation, we thought we'd ask, how did this poem come to you at first? And what was it like for you working on it with Tamsin? Is that working on a, a poem instead of, you know, the usual prose and, and books that you might do? Of course. Uh, so this poem showed up just at the front of the first draft of None of the Ninth when I got it. Um, and it really knocked me away, really like bowled me over because of how different it is from the uh, poetry that has been in the series so far. The first two books have an expanding poem about the houses and what they represent in relation to the emperor and are propaganda poetry. They exist to serve a purpose for that society, which is to tell the houses who they are and who they belong to. And those were always fun. I'm really happy to have them. In fact, like I didn't know they existed. And I asked Tamsin, hey, do you have like a sorting hat poem um, with the, you know, we all hope that Tamsin will not become like J.K. Rowling. <laughs> and I don't think there's any 
danger of that. Little little asterisks beside all Harry Potter references. It's all good. <laughs> you can cut that out if you want to. Um, but, you know, there's houses. You want to be sorted into them. Yeah. Um, and she already had it written. You know, she immediately turned it around. She also turned around the first draft of the skull ornament. So that world building always existed. Mm-hmm. And I love that poem, but it is a piece of propaganda. It is like intentionally sort of artistically compromised. Mm-hmm. And this isn't. It really impressed me It it with just like how good it was, how like <laughs> vibrant and compelling and rich it was. It was really great to see you annotate it because we've seen all kinds of wonderful fan art uh, and fan work and cosplay and all kinds of stuff. This is the first uh, poetry annotation to happen for the series <laughs> and the first poetry annotation I've read since graduating college. Oh my so. goodness, big milestone for the pod. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't annotated a poem since AP English back, oh geez, 10 years ago now. Um, but I was working on it late at night trying to procrastinate grading um, <laughs> and it sort of sprung out of me. I, I took a screenshot from the newsletter and opened up Photoshop and sort of started typing. I'm curious. Um, so, you know, I had structural annotations as well as content annotations. I'm curious if you knew whether or not it was intended to be a sonnet, like, you know, did, did you get any indication from Tamsin about that? Cause the final line is so ambiguous, you know, is it 13 or 14 lines? <laughs> I didn't get any indication of that from Tanzan up ahead. She sort of just presented the book and said, here it is, start editing. Well, here's 60% of it, start reading. Uh, We'll talk about that later. (laughs) Um, And I was thinking of it as like, it felt like a very familiar format, but I'm not actually a poetry guy almost Mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. I, I was an English major in college and I would, I took classes on poetry, but never on purpose. Right. It's the form I avoided more than anything else. Yes. Uh, I know the feeling. So, <laughs> it's yeah, required, yeah. but you don't want to take it. Yeah. So I, it, it felt like a song to me at first, but I wasn't sort of thinking of that consciously. One step I took, however, was to have my dad read it, who's Hi. both a Locked Tomb fan and an English professor. That's fantastic. He's an early modern scholar specializing in the connection between Shakespeare and Montaigne. Oh, very cool. So he sort of identified it as mostly a sonnet. I think it is, I think the last two lines, although they are half lines, are meant to be read as a couplet. Mm, That makes sense. Um, Yeah, I guess the ambiguity comes from, you know, almost all the other lines in the poem being a full unit of iambic pentameter. And then the final two lines, even though there is that line break, you know, the, the meter of the rest of the poem would suggest that there's supposed to be one line. So I was like, oh, there's no way it's a sonnet. It's only 13 lines. But we got some really interesting feedback from someone who saw it on Tumblr who argued that, you know, technically, yes, it does have 14 lines. And it also does have, you know, I was sort of ambiguous about this, like arguing with myself in my interpretation, but it does have a volta where that imagery turns from sleeping to more macabre subjects like death. Um, and I think rereading it now, yeah, I do have to agree. I, I like thinking about it as a sonnet as well. Speaking of the Volta and the early modern period, my favorite reading of that line, lie down beside you, die and sleep the night, was not actually in your annotation, which is die has another reading in the early modern context, which is to orgasm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Shakespeare makes so much hay out of this connection. So I remember like, that from high school. <laughs> many many laughs very very French (laughs) whoever is speaking in this poem 
I, I asked Tamsin about this. She said, I hadn't been thinking about that, but it's clearly mm, true. <laughs> that works well. Yeah, because like a sonnet is generally a love poem uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as well. So that definitely fits with that, the structural format as well as that potential play on words there. That's fantastic. And this is definitely a love poem. It's an angry love poem. It's, it's a vengeful love poem. Um, and it's a selfish love poem. But that's what love is like in this setting. It's angry and it's possessive and it's so often tied to destruction and both self-destruction and the destruction of your loved one. Yeah. So I think it's the right love poem for where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. I think that's one thing that really struck me reading this sort of, um, just how it, how deeply personal it feels like, and, and everyone's trying to figure out exactly, you know, who's speaking, who are they speaking to, but it's, it's so obvious. That it's a very kind of intimate relationship that's being alluded to in the sonnet um, compared to, like you were saying, Carl, the other kind of poems or similar structures that we've seen so far have been like the propaganda poem with the houses, or we talked a bit about sort of the, the prayer of the ninth house. And we looked at sort of religion in, in the world of the locked tomb and everything else that we've seen that's sort of been more of a poetic kind of structure before has been very, you know, impersonal or propagandish. And so to get something like this, which is very intensely personal, I think also is really intriguing to to a lot of fans. But it does, I think, reflect the ways in which even interpersonal relationships have been shaped by imperialism in this series. And I think we'll touch on that more in a later episode, but the fact that cavalier necromancer relationships have been so twisted by their purpose within the empire, um, you know, even this poem that's very personal seems to have that, yeah, that sort of the violence inherent in a lot of these interpersonal relationships in the series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the sword is very interpersonal in all these relationships. Wow. I don't like that. <laughs> the interpersonal sword. Um, <laughs> One thing that we were wondering as well was also about this poem in, in the larger kind of release strategy for teasing up to known in the ninth right now, we've, we've seen kind of different bits and pieces There's in the excerpt as well, but we we're wondering if you had any kind of insight on, on that kind of decision-making of, of why this was released to give fans something to gnash their teeth about uh, for the next few months. <laughs> I think that it's a good forerunner for the content of the book, because one thing I'll say about this poem is you can make a lot of guesses, but I didn't understand it until I'd read the book and started oh. over and knew okay. what, by the end of the book, you'll understand this poem, or you can reread the book and then you'll understand the poem. I, yes. <laughs> I don't think you could ever really feel complete on any of these books and your understanding until you reread it no. a couple of times. And then I also... mean, here, here we are podcasting, <laughs> trying to figure it all out as, as we go yeah. back through this. So I don't think it can spoil things so it's a good sort of opener I think it's a beautiful piece of poetry so I'm like happy to have it out there and get people excited again about reading new words from Tamsin Mm -hmm. and I think there's a lot to speculate about in it so our hope is that we can give y'all stuff to chew on and stuff to speculate about without spoiling the fun oh my goodness (laughs) (laughs) well and part of the fun is the mystery too like it's it's been part of this larger strategy of teasers leading up to the Nona release where it seems like the strategy has just been to make everything as confusing and opaque as possible, um, as mysterious as possible. And I'm curious, you know, to what extent was that a decision from the marketing team versus Tamsin intentionally, you know, wanting to make her books a puzzle box? So those two ideas, it coming from marketing or it coming from Tamsin, is very interwoven. Of course. Most of the marketing initiatives come from our side. We suggest ideas 
we present them to Tamsin and she mostly just gives her okay and sometimes provides some material for us to work with. I think that a good marketing campaign should reflect the shape of the book it's marketing. And I think that these books, that our marketing is mysterious because these books are metaphysical mysteries. And these books succeed because they are these mystery boxes that people want to engage with and re-engage with, Mm -hmm. which is like the basis of a fantasy series in particular becoming immortal. I grew up in the Wheel of Time reading trenches. And while I wasn't fully in, in the fandom, anytime I did my tone online, I was like, oh, there are thousands and thousands of people having the kinds of conversations that I have with my father about what might happen and what my evidence is for what might happen. Oh, that's fantastic. We're about to read the first Wheel of Time book for our book club. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. A little Carl fact is that my objective in everything I drove for in the Locked Tomb series was to make it look as much like a Wheel of Time book as I could, despite (laughs) it being nothing like a Wheel of Time book. Oh my God. Which is why there's a glossary now, which is why there are chapter ornaments that like mean things. Yes. Mm. I was always trying to piece together I would see a an ornament in a Wheel of Time book and be like, oh no, I recognize that. That means there's going to be this in this chapter or, oh, this represents a character I'm very tired of reading about. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's fantastic. Yeah. Because I think there is so much to glean from the the chapter ornaments, specifically in Harrow the Ninth. You know, is this part of the dream bubble? Is this real life? Yeah. There's definitely lots to grapple with there. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the and the more that you can kind of give fans something to speculate about or, or question, like the kind of mystery box, I really like that as a way as a way of framing it. You're, you're creating fandom when fans have something to go and reach out and try to talk to each other about online or in their own lives or whatever, because they, they have these questions that they want answered. And I do think with what's come out so far about Nona the Ninth, I think I've said to Bailey before, but it's, it's probably the most, the, the least I've ever known or understood about <laughs> something I was reading from a book that was like, not the first book in a series, like where I've, I've read two books already. I should kind of know what's going on or what to expect in the next book. And every time Tor releases anything, whether it was the synopsis, there's, there's a girl we've never heard of before. There's a birthday party, there's dogs, like all, all these little things that just mean nothing, but it's been so fun in a way. And I think that like, personally, I just sort of leaned into embracing that aspect of not having a clue of what it means and loving that, but it does obviously create such a frenzy of, of fans online wanting to figure it out. And, and obviously with, with this book in particular, I think a lot of that mystery comes from the fact that fans thought they sort of knew what to expect, which was, it was going to be Electo the ninth. That was the name that we'd heard you know, of. We don't know who Electo is. So like, you know, the, <laughs> but, but we had a little bit of an idea of what was coming. And then all of a sudden in a very, you know, frenzied sort of way, there was this discovery online on Twitter, looking at the Harrow paperback that actually there's something <gasps> yes. called Nona the ninth. It's a series. So one thing we wanted to ask was both, what was that process? Like both the decision to separate those books on, on your end and that, but also I don't know how involved you or if you can speak to the kind of tour side of things or tour.com side of things when it was put out online already that people had started to piece together that that decision had been made. That blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, there was that's that's a whole saga. Um, you don't need to go to it, do it if you don't want to. No, no, I'd love to. Okay. The decision to separate the books started with fear and panic because mm-hmm. it, it took a long time to get to the point where I got to read any of Nona. Uh, after Harrow came out, Tamsin was working on this book and working on this book and working on this book. And, you know, I think we all struggled a lot 
uh, during the beginning of the pandemic. Oh my it goodness, was yeah. Also, that coincided with the beginning of Tamsin's life as a public figure, which is a very stressful time for authors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would urge all your fans, I mean, Tamsin's doing great, but I would urge all your fans to consider that the most stressful time in any author's life is when they finish their first book and have to write a second because they have to do something that the first time they did it took their entire lives in about nine months to a year (laughs) while doing publicity and marketing stuff. Yeah. It really sucks. (laughs) No, I can't imagine. Um, And it sucks in different ways, depending on how the book is going. So, and success can weigh quite heavily as well. Yeah. So we're like a year out from when I'd hoped to have seen a little bit of lecto and I got on a call with Tamsin and she said, well, I think I could have something for you soon about two thirds of the way through the first act. Problem is those two thirds are 90,000 words long. Light And so I asked her how many acts are there going to be? She said three or four. I said, well, that math doesn't work out, Tamsin, because your last book was 160,000 words. And what you're talking about is 300,000 words. And that book just, it, we can't, Not we can't print that. I mean, some, you can print a book that long, but we're, you know, to get really technical and really boring. Uh, this is published in the group format, which is five and three eighths by eight and a half, basically inches. For the, for the dimensions of the book. Yeah. Okay. And when you're approaching that, you want to switch over into the larger scale format, six by nine, when it crosses a certain page length, because it's just economical at that point. Which is why you tend to see huge fantasy doorstoppers. They're taller and wider than shorter books as well. Mm -hmm. So this 320,000 word book would be a very deep book and would look twice as big. (laughs) as the previous book on the shelves and would be love a series that looks the same (laughs) and Tamsin is not writing these books in a way where you are just like blasting through them the way you do for a 300,000 word book right yeah yep so I said basically Tamsin could you just send me what you have and we'll see if maybe that could be its own book (laughs) um and fortunately it can uh I, I promise you this is a book that feels like one book not a book that feels like it was lopped off of something else right perfect I got to read like 60% of it at that point and by the end of it I didn't know what was going to happen to Nona or like where her story was going Mm -hmm. but I was a hundred percent confident that it was going to be its own book okay this is the book about Nona and the next book is like the book that will conclude the series you know perfect it really it, it couldn't have been the first act of Electo uh, mm-hmm. because Nona is such a vibrant character. She deserves her own book and she deserves to be the viewpoint in her book. Mm-hmm. And I think that sounds fair based on how the other books have, have been as well, obviously, kind of as, as the titles go. We were very much with Gideon in the first book, very much with Harrow in the next book. So even though we don't know anything about Nona now, I think from what we have read it, it makes sense that she'll get her own book too. And we'll, we'll really get to be as enmeshed with her as we were with those characters. 
That's true. Well, structurally, like there are little snippets of other POVs in Gideon and Hera, but yeah, it's not like a shift halfway through or anything like that. When you were when you were describing, um, you know, the dimensions of a three hundred thousand word book, I was picturing that like piece of art where somebody printed out all of Wikipedia, like in you know eight and a half by eleven. It was like five feet tall or something like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd love my, to have that on my shelf. It it would be cumbersome to open. The spine <laughs> yeah. would be under considerable pressure. When just going around, like getting real buff from lugging around their Electo the Ninth tome everywhere they go. <laughs> A bunch of totes just bulging out in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, love that. Um, and then, yeah, we we sort of uh, hinted at this earlier, but the fact that that decision was kind of revealed uh, on Twitter and that with with the fan kind of pulling it together, was that a uh, a stressful time on your end? Or it's exciting. <laughs> did it affect the rollout in any way? <laughs> To speak politely, that was a stressful time. Okay. I was I was on paternity leave when that happened. Right. Okay. Um, and I was like the caretaker for my my newborn at that time. Mm-hmm. And those were a few days where I was in quite a few meetings with a three month old baby on my chest. Oh, oh my goodness. Um, it was it worked out fine we're very happy you're also enthusiastic <laughs> i'm a little annoyed at the amazon look inside function but i can't talk anymore about that yeah no i know what you mean <laughs> totally um yeah. but it was also like to be fair you know it it was like a couple of months before we knew it was going to be revealed by people opening the trade paperback anyway right. we put it in there for people to find it right not to find it in that way but to find it <laughs> and see what people found was a list of books by Tamsin yes. that showed the locked tomb in a new order with a new book that said Nona and then the ninth was a strike through. And we knew that people would freak out about it. <laughs> we just expected yeah. to be able to have people freak out about it in a way that we were prepared for. Exactly. Right, right. Yeah. Always no. intended to cause panic, just slightly premature <laughs> panic the way yeah. that it came out. Okay. And then, you know, we managed to maneuver things such that the description of the book fed out at a point that we expected it to. Like we were pretty sure y'all would find that about when you did and had taken a bunch of steps to hide everything about the book until that was ready. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there were definitely based on the reactions I saw, like people would completely have believed if Nona had just been like a short story that was being added into the middle, like you could have said anything, honestly, like (laughs) it was just the title that had people (laughs) in a, you know, in a frenzy. Yeah. My policy is when I'm tweeting, I don't lie. When I'm retweeting other people, those are deceptions or just things I found very funny. Um, (laughs) And also I was told going into this that if pushed for Nona spoilers, I should just lie. Uh, That was Tams's directive. I think that that would be too transparent a strategy. Oh my goodness. We've been warned though. And and we know now with the retweets, we know what to expect there. They're not endorsements. They are lies. I'm often hitting retweet thinking they're going to be really upset about this. That is oh funny because you do see, I mean, with, with a fandom that's so involved in following everything, I think I have seen discussion of, you know, the, the editor liked this tweet, you know, what does it mean? Does it mean that that's going to happen? And and my instinct is always, you know, 
probably not necessarily like that seems like it would be a pretty spoiler thing to do if you're going around and only liking all the crack things but i can imagine how fun it must be to see the theories and wild conspiracies that people are coming up with now and to encourage that a little i like bit. to be toyed with i i one of my favorite moments with the nona reveal was when the cover was coming out and there was a tweet that was like you know um two truths and a lie but what's going to be on the cover and it was like sword gas mask hamburger and i was like there's no way there's going to be a hamburger <laughs> i was fooled we were very proud of that particular directive. I uh, We had a lot of fun putting that one together. That was fantastic. I like that picture of my mind that is just a person who goes through and likes all the things that people <laughs> write about. Isn't that an interesting person to be? Exactly, exactly. I want to warn your fandom that I am much more chaotic than that. Okay. <laughs> Got it. So we should yeah. we should take the opposite away from everything that you like on Twitter. That's my new policy. Much more chaotic than that still. <laughs> Got it. Well, I know you, you, were, you were saying that today, that if you if you came on and just said a bunch of lies about Nona the Ninth, that that's still something people could pick their way through and, and, and by possibly, okay, if that's not going to happen, then it must be this instead or something like that. That, um, that would be way too easy. Like no, the thing yeah, that everyone no. needs to remember, I am the editor who connected with this book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, that is a brilliant segue, actually, because the next thing I was about to ask you was to take a step back from Nona the Ninth and, and kind of to the origins of this series. I was doing my research before this chat, and I know that you've been with Tor.com Publishing right from the start of the imprint really early on. And so I was wondering when Gideon the Ninth first came across your desk, what your first impression was of that and what it was specifically that made you think it would be a good fit with Tor.com. Yeah, I, I remember that day really clearly. It was the beginning... I remember it very clearly, but I'm never quite confident about what year my memories are from. <laughs> the last two years have been fake. Yeah, it was the beginning of 2018, the first like week of 2018. Okay. It, my parents were in town and also we were all snowed in because there'd been like a really heavy snowstorm in New York. And I got an email from Tamsin, who I'd been in correspondence with for a few months. I, I originally read one of her short stories, The Magician's Apprentice, I believe it's called. Uh, okay. okay. And I read it. It was very dark, very messed up, very provocative. And I thought, this is an author who could produce some really dark award-baity thing that like a few thousand people will enjoy. I should reach out to her for a novella, which is something I do sometimes. I find short fiction authors and think, you can write. Mm -hmm. Try writing for me. Yeah. Or write more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I reached out to Tamsin. She said she had some ideas for a novella, but she was working on a novel. And could she get back to you when she was done with that? I said, yes, sure. And then about a month later, she said, another one of your authors who I went to Clarion with said I should stop being silly and just send you my novel. So can I do that? It's a, she described it as a necromantic monastery thriller. <laughs> That's my wow. favorite niche. <laughs> Tamsin's gotten better at describing her books since then. <laughs> Monastery thriller. But I said, yeah, sure, send it my way. I opened it and I got to the dramatic persona and I went, oh, ho. Mm. And I read for a little bit. I basically got through the first two chapters sitting in my room, like with my like parents in the front room of the apartment. And I, after the first two chapters, I went out and said to them, I'm going to have to vanish for the rest of the day. I have to read this book with ah! no distractions. Oh until it's done. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I think the line that tipped me over was, oh, I wish I, I had it off the top of my head. Uh, it was uh, it, it, Marshall Crocks advanced 
like an avalanche with an agenda. It's something like that. <laughs> something very close let to that. Let me find it. Let me find it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Those early chapters are so good. I think we talked a bit as well about the moments that really jumped out at us. And, a glacier and- with an agenda. A glacier with an agenda. Yes. <laughs> I read that. I was like, I will buy this book one way or another. (laughs) She just has such a way with words. (laughs) She does. And I blitzed through it and sent it to my colleagues as soon as I could. And I had the clearest vision I'd ever had of a book that I'd received that it was both perfectly suited to me Mm -hmm. and a potential bestseller. Nothing I'd worked on had ever lined up like that in my head. I just read it and knew this will work for so many people without compromising my sense of writing at all. Oh, amazing. It felt perfect. And also it was because I had the brainwave, there are a whole bunch of goths and there's a whole bunch of lesbians and there's a significant overlap in that market (laughs) and no one's ever catered to them in my entire genre. (laughs) So we will, and they will do everything for us. Yeah, corner that market. It's so true. I love to be catered to. But I think that also speaks as well to, you know, joking about kind of the funny combination of necromancy and and monastery and the pitch for it. Like, it really does read like a book where I think you can tell sometimes as a reader when an author has put in sort of a bunch of their own different interests or things that appeal to them. And it's not necessarily a cross section that you've seen before you would normally see, but it's clear that they're just having so much fun with those different things. And I think when that lines up with your own interests as a reader, it's just the most delightful feeling in the world where it's like, I love swords. I love, you know, dark magic and haunted houses and also their space. I've never seen all these things thrown together before. And I'm having so much fun with it in a way where I feel like the author was as well. So, you know, you're saying how it lined up for your own reading taste and also what you could imagine doing really well. Like, I think there is just that feeling you get sometimes when it's a really unique combination of really, really fun things like that. This is a wonderful moment for that in speculative fiction because the boundaries between genres haven't been this thin for decades. Mm. The success of the fantasy genre coming out of the 80s and 90s, I mean, really like Tolkien like crystallized the fantasy genre into Mm -hmm. being a specific way and people were just spinning off it, different versions of that for a long time. And then we started getting these new mega blockbusters Buster hits, you know, your Robert Jordans, your George R. R. Martins, who made these very clear paths. And then for like a decade, fantasy was about trying to make the next Game of Thrones. Yeah. Right. And none of them totally coalesced or came together. And by the time I started working on this stuff in 2012, people were ready for something different. And instead of it being one different thing, the doors just got blown off. Like, Science fiction can be fantasy, fantasy can be science fiction. They're all blending with horror. They're all blending with dark fantasy. The necessity that something either be like, it doesn't have to be on earth to be like modern fantasy anymore. That was like a requirement that was hammered out by the power and success of urban fantasy coming out of, you know, Gaiman's influence. Like all of that is falling away. Yeah. And so there's so many people who are writing the books just the way they want to and being able to sell that. And that's great. Like the books I want to do are always the books where the authors are having the most fun and thinking the least about how it fits into what other people have done. I would also like to add that I think, you know, beyond the boundaries 
between sci-fi and fantasy blurring a bit also the boundaries with the romance genre like I think there's been a big trend with sci-fi and fantasy romance exploding over the last little while but also you know even contemporary fiction has I mean I guess there's always been a little bit there's always been the occasional book that I personally would see as speculative fiction that has you know really mainstream appeal because of its writing style or whatnot I'm thinking about like Haruki Murakami Mm -hmm. but yeah you're I mean, I would completely agree that over the last 10 years, that's been a big trend. And I think that there's a lot of people who've been pushing on that boundary between the literary and the speculative, mostly coming from the other direction, from the literary side. Mm-hmm. And now there's people pushing back from, from the speculative side. It's it's great. The cross-pollination can only make both genres, all the genres stronger. Because when you talk about blending in romance, it's wonderful because it comes in, it has this huge vitalizing effect on whatever genre it's mingling with. And then you don't know whose rules are in place, which can be a downside if what you want is the romance reader experience. But I think that figuring out what rules are in place that, that are governing a fiction is one of the greatest pleasures of reading. That's very true. I was gonna follow up I guess it's not like a perfect segue but I'm very curious so I'm just gonna ask um, <laughs> I saw that you also edited Dr. Malka Alder's Infomocracy trilogy which I loved I did yeah and well for our listeners who maybe haven't read those books both Infomocracy and The Locked Tomb are set in like a future earth but very different focuses Dr. Alder is very interested in like the political intricacies of this world the books are more I would say like thrillers less of a puzzle box and they handle multiple POV characters very differently but like they're both this kind of sweeping sci-fi with big stakes. Uh, I'm curious if you could speak to any like similarities or differences with the editing process for those series. Well, I was a very different person for the main <laughs> reason that uh, Infomocracy is the first novel I edited. Really? Oh my ever. goodness. Yeah, it's the first. Infomocracy is the first novel that Tor.com Publishing ever did. I didn't know that. And before we got it, we didn't know whether we would be allowed to edit novels. <laughs> so... <laughs> We had to bust open that door from our novella-focused beginnings. So that is like the the, the biggest thing, just like a tremendous difference in experience. But also those books were much more plastic before when they came to me. Mm -hmm. They had much more malleability. We changed the plot of Infomocracy a whole lot. Whereas when I got to the ninth, anytime I tried to make a change, Tamsin, if you listen to this, this is a sense of deepest respect, but also you keep lying about me threatening you with a crossbow. So I'm going to air some laundry. Every time I was like, can you make Harrow be like 10% nicer to Gideon? She'd be like, everywhere you suggested I make that change. If I did that, it would destroy the plot for the next three books. Oh like, okay. That was, it was just a clock. And every time I tried to move like oil and gear, she was like, no, 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 no. Oh You're going to make the clock stop. Wow. But also like every book is very, very different. You meet it mm-hmm. where it is and where you are and you try to make a merger of the two. They have also like totally different aims. Of course. Infomocracy and getting the ninth. So yeah, I'd say that infomocracy, like it's trying to collectively imagine a utopia. Whereas like if the lock tomb is a utopia, it only exists in John's head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the further it gets in, the more it, it aims to complicate that utopia. Yes. Like the Sentinel cycle represents a future that is better than we are going to get. Yeah, <laughs> almost certainly. But still is what, like for a little more context, these books are post-cyberpunk, 
political thrillers. They're like 60 years in the future, 80 years in the future from when they were published. And they're about a globally dispersed democracy that people are trying to subvert and sabotage. But like, this is the future where the UN buys out Google and merges. (laughs) There are better futures than that available. We're just Mm -hmm. not likely to get any of them. Mm -hmm. I know. We're more likely to end up with a horrifying necromantic empire where (laughs) any spark of vitality was leached away long ago. Yikes. Oh my goodness. Well, it's funny you were speaking to your, the sort of editing process with Tamsin and, you know, can Harrow be nicer and, and this and that. We were obviously curious as well just to hear a bit of, you know, what your editorial process with Tamsin has really been like and how that's evolved now. I think when you're working on a series like this, I imagine obviously it's different than doing a standalone project with an author where you get to develop both the relationship with the author and also get more of an idea of where the series is going. So you're wondering if that was something that you could speak to moving from Gideon to Harrow, even if you can't get into Nona too much sort of what that relationship has been like. Yeah, we changed the structure of Harrow a lot more than we changed the structure of Gideon. Harrow is a less clockwork book. Like there was definitely stuff that couldn't get changed because it would make the whole thing, you know, fall apart. And also (laughs) Tamsin's looking forward to future books that she needs to get right. And sometimes things have changed as she's figured out things that will happen in future books that we try to catch in time. But in Gideon, the biggest changes I made were to the prose, to how we could find a balance between the arcane language and the like meme lord language <laughs> and make it all run smooth. Yeah. Uh, and that is that was harder in that book than in any subsequent book because Tamsin and I figured each other out after that. Right, right. Like we found a balance between where I want the book to be and where she wants the book to be. And also I should say, as an editor, your goal is always to land where the author wants the book to be. But that gets easier year after year as you work together. Of course. And uh, that was the book where I developed my reputation with her as like a meme hater. I love the memes <laughs> in this book. Uh, I think they're fantastic. Tamsin and I have exactly... Our humors were formed in the same like five years of Tumblr culture, I think. <laughs> the crucible, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have some different touch points now. Tamsin, uh, we we are now dif- drinking from different wells of internet poison. But <laughs> She's not on um, Twitter, yeah. <laughs> no, she's not. Uh, and no one should be. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think I've removed far fewer memes than they think. I okay. think, is the Mr. Bones wild ride meme in there anymore does that sound completely unfamiliar mm, I don't, it does not ring a bell I don't think so that was what we were actually wondering about was if there were any memes that you remembered that didn't survive the cut <laughs> well because yeah she said in one interview she's in an exchange of hostages with you that was <laughs> that made me laugh it was like can I have this and like there were like three things and she's like I need this one I was like then I'm taking this one <laughs> and we just sort of saw who would blink first Mr. Bones Wild Ride I was like okay Tamsin I get this reference to a something awful let's play of Roller Toaster Tycoon from 2007 or whatever, but it is 12 years out of date now, and this book is 10,000 years in the future, and also, why would Harrow say this? (laughs) Yeah. Oh my goodness. Drawing out her deep well of Roller Coaster Tycoon experience. I feel like Harrow would be, she would love Roller Coaster Tycoon. 
Yeah, she would have a level of control. I have a great friend, shout out to you, Suzanne, who named her cats uh, that she adopted. She adopted two black cats. She named them Hera, Hark, and Gideon. Um, and she was describing the way she played Roller Coaster Tycoon, which was to build a roller coaster that intentionally threw its cars into the neighboring park because <laughs> the deaths counted on their ledger. And I, it's the most sinister thing I've ever heard her do in any context. She's a wonderful person and normally <laughs> treats even virtual people quite humanely. <laughs> Something about Roller Coaster Tycoon really unlocks the horror inside a soul. Brings out the worst, apparently. You can yeah. do so much. Everyone in the park can die. Yeah, absolutely fascinating game. At this point, I think Tamsin's mission is to make her references sufficiently subtle that I find out about them when it's too late. Oh, no. uh, Alex Harrow pointed out something in Nona to me that I had completely missed. And when she pointed out to me, I went like red with fury. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'd missed it. It was too late. Oh, so know, it survived. She got it's it, in she there got it past me. It, it gets to live. I could have changed <laughs> at that point, but it gets to live. She won. I'm I'm very excited to see what that is. What we yeah. Nona. <laughs> we'll, we'll be reading Nona, trying to figure out what is the meme that, that slipped through the cracks. Under the radar. There's also a line of dialogue that Harrow spoke in the pool scene that another editor, uh, Roshi Chen, and I were like looking at the book to get like Roshi had just been hired at that point. Roshi's a great editor. She's done like The Chosen, The Beautiful. She's done A Marvelous Light. Great books. But uh, we both agreed that there was this line, you are the sole fruitful thing in my salted field, that we were both like, this is disgusting. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is weird and, and horny and, and just, this doesn't really fit. And we went back about it like seven times because like it's the pool scene. We were also trying to like see how much tenderness we could get into that moment. Mm-hmm. And so eventually Tenson took it out and then had a Yanthi say it in Harrow. <gasps> and I was like, okay, <laughs> that's fine. Yanthi's a horny psychopath. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's perfect. Too weird and horny for the tender moment. Perfect for Yante. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's the kind of thing that Yanthi would say to hit on Harrow. <laughs> In my salted field. Okay, oh that's God. that's amazing. That is incredible. Speaking of sort of the the memes that slip through the cracks and and, and that, yeah, that fans pick up on. That fans pick up on exactly. Um, I actually saw we we talked about memes previously, and and I saw the nun house with left grief one, for example. Like mm-hmm. I saw a screenshot of that going around Twitter, and 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 people kind of losing their minds over that. And I think that's kind of what you end up seeing with these books sometimes is people will pull out these references and you know find them. So from that angle, what has that been like for you seeing that? not even just with memes specifically, but just the kind of really attentiveness to detail from the fans as it's grown into such a huge fandom. And especially with the mystery element of these books, like how does it feel to know that people are really digging their teeth into every line and word of these books that you're working on? It is scary and I love it. Okay. (laughs) Uh, There's people who have pulled out, I saw a wonderful piece of meta the other day that changed how I understood the core relationship of the series. Um, There was a piece of meta, I forget who wrote it, but it was about Gideon's culpability in the toxic codependency of her relationship with Harrow, describing how, like, the thing you see immediately in their relationship is that Harrow's a monster. (laughs) I've had people very close to me who, like, want to read the stuff that I'm working on not be able to read the book because Harrow's a bad person (laughs) 
who owns Gideon. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when people like that ask me, is there a vengeance relationship? The answer is no, not really. <laughs> but this meta was pointing out that, yes, Harrow is obsessive, possessive, controlling. She's all the bad things that you say. And Gideon meets her with this energy of martyrdom. Like Gideon's fondest wish, like her fantasy is to run away and join the cohort so that she can bring back so much treasure and glory that Harrow has to acknowledge that she needs her. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's fucked up. (laughs) Like, obviously, like Gideon is the victim in their relationship mostly, but Mm -hmm. she's leaning into that victimhood. She's savoring that victimhood in a way that's really toxic. So I I hadn't ever phrased that to myself that way. Um, yeah. So well, and of course, you know, it's it's Gideon's decision that ultimately leads to her own death because of. I mean, I don't yeah. know if I necessarily call it a martyrdom complex, but like those feelings have definitely come to the fore for her. Yeah, her her refrain to Harrow is "Shut up and use me." Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> use me. Harrow, consume me, burn me as fuel. Yeah. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. And that's that's not a healthy way. Like they're not goals. <laughs> don't <laughs> don't don't try to be like them. Not what we want. And you know, Tamsin knows they're not goals. Yeah. That is a really interesting way to look at it because even though the story is presented, you know, right from the start as something that Gideon wants to get away from and, and obviously ends up getting sucked in along this journey, what she's thinking of is what Harrow's reaction is going to be if she if she does get away, if she does achieve glory. Like I think that they're so connected by virtue of, you know, growing up as the two only people of their age in this really hostile environment as well, even though it's not a balanced relationship at all because Harrow has all the power. Like they're the only sort of reference point that each other have in a certain way and so I think that that is a really interesting way to frame it how it's a dynamic that they both encourage in different ways yeah they are just two trees that have intertwined like they they've grown around each other neither means anything without the other yeah yeah well I was gonna say like calling back to how you're mentioning how Tamsin didn't want to change anything about Harrow's behavior in Gideon the Ninth like it didn't escape my notice that a lot of what Harrow goes through on the Mithraeum and Harrow the Ninth like really parallels Gideon's childhood in the Ninth. And I wonder if that's kind of, those were the dots she was connecting in her head, right? Like it's a shitty cold place she doesn't want to be, although obviously more, probably a bit nicer than Gideon's childhood in the Ninth. There's the constant physical discomfort with the headaches and the carrying around the sword, psychological pain, mentor figures and adults who don't care about you. One of them's trying to actively kill her at all times. <laughs> more capable peer, Ianthe treating her like shit alienated from her religion anyway yeah it's like a sort of a step towards putting them on the same playing field I think towards the end of the series I hope anyway. yeah I, I think I, I mean we'll see yeah the, the big secret of me in relation to the series is that right now I know a lot more than the fan base once Nona the Ninth comes out I will know maybe 10% more than the fan base unless <laughs> Electo has been delivered because Tamsin does not tell me what's going to happen oh my goodness okay I edited all of Gideon with no knowledge of I don't know how the series ends but I'll just say that straight up no wow. idea I know that Tamsin knows how the series ends she's had the whole idea in her head the whole time and it's gone through changes mm-hmm. but you know I don't know so like when Tamsin was writing Harrow she came to me and said Carl I basically had these two options for how this book could be written one is fairly straightforward the other and I've been writing both drafts, which is really slowing me oh, down. No. Um, one is pretty straightforward. And the other is 
absolute psychedelic nonsense. It's a draft I like better, but I'm worried it's going to be too alienating. And I basically said, well, lean in. Yeah. If it's really broken, we'll fix it later. <laughs> but, you know, I made that choice having read zero words of Harrow the Ninth. Oh, oh my goodness. Well, it was the right choice, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Um, so when you first read Harrow the Ninth, your, the draft that you first got of it from her, did you know anything about that psychedelic decision making? Or did you have a similar experience of trying to figure out what the hell was going on? <laughs> He had basically told me that Harrow's mind had been fragmented by grief, but I did not know that she had been lobotomized when I started reading it. I didn't know Yancey's role in it, and I didn't know what the dream bubbles were. Like, I didn't know why this thing was playing out in parallel. um, (laughs) The same experience. Yeah, (laughs) basically, basically. there were times when I like checked in with her and <laughs> I think that like I'm quite good at reading this series because I like have had so many conversations with Tamsin. I have like a leg up. Yeah. But the moment in Harrow when the second person becomes first person like could caught me completely unawares and I was <gasps> like, oh, this will be the thing that anyone who's read this book properly wants to yell about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think I figured it out in that scene with Palamides in his own bubble mm-hmm. when he says that he saw me and I thought, oh my God. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's exactly yeah, that's like, the sentence I'm talking about. That was about. the sentence, yes. Yeah. It starts to come together and then that just like, it's like a cold d- douse of water all over mm-hmm. you and it really mm-hmm. is so jarring. So good. And it's, it's such a good payoff too. I think that's the thing. If you're going to have a book where people are so not really understanding what's going on for such a long time than to get like a sudden jolt like that when you've kind of gotten used to the confusing second person was just so, so good. Yeah. I mean, the flip side of that is like when I finished reading Gideon and like, you know, Gideon, the reason to read Gideon the Ninth is dead on a spike and I'm left with, (laughs) oh, uh, Harrow, she's not nice. She doesn't seem like she'd be fun to read a whole book about. I was like, Tamsin, she gotta die. Oh. And Ted was like, yeah, she gotta die. I was like, I mean, is Harrow gonna eat her in a way where we can still hear from her? And she was like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> But like, I had been given any kind of reassurances <gasps> there whatsoever. Oh my God. Besides sort of knowing that one of my rules as a reader of epic fantasy is if you know something for sure about a magic system in book one, it should be proven false by the last book. Like, and it's not an interesting magic system if the rules you think are fundamentally true go unchallenged because that's not, that's static. So I was like, you know, this is a book about necromancy. Even if the book tells me it's impossible for Gideon to come back, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Like we will see characters who have died again in some format because it's a book about necromancy. Why would you make it about necromancy if you weren't going to exploit that? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So my favorite tease of going into Harrow the Ninth, telling people who had no context whatsoever, is there are only two or three characters from Gideon that don't appear in Harrow. That's true. <laughs> it is true. It's everyone's like, everyone's dead, but don't worry, they're all coming back. <laughs> but a lot of them are there as characters. Yeah, exactly. It's, yep. it's wild. Like, it's, it's a great magic trick. And like I think the ones who don't come back are like sisters, Isomorsha and Lacrimorsha. We don't see much of Silas. Yeah. But, we don't see yeah. much of Silas. But the teens are there. Briefly. 
True. They're there for a moment and they are having the best time. That <laughs> They're like, we understand this joke. We don't know why we're just saying it, but like, you're more upset than we are about this. Oh my gosh. Oh, I love geez. them. I think that that's one doing my, we haven't got there in our recap yet, but like doing different reads through everything with the teens is just, I think that was one of the harder things for me for sure. They are perfect angels made of trash. RIP. We love that. <laughs> we love those trash angels. I think the funniest thing in that series, like we went back and forth about how much Gideon was going to dump on them. And what we ended up doing was like making it more diverse how she dumped on them. Like okay. they were originally called shitty teens, like six times as often or whatever. And we like <laughs> changed out the verbiage, but that is the contempt of an 18 year old for a 15 year old. Yeah, <laughs> One of the hottest flames in the galaxy. And you know, they don't know yet that they are also shitty teens. <laughs> yeah. Like when you're a senior in high school and you're looking down at like all the grade nine kids coming in and you're like, I'm so much better than them. <laughs> Yeah. Now I look at college students and I'm like, oh, those are also babies. Yes, yes. exactly. Oh like I'm a I'm a TA for a biology class and all these they look like children to me. It's unreal. <laughs> mm-hmm. <sighs> okay, moving back to these books. We talked a little bit about this earlier, but you did mention that um, Tamsin suggested to use this interview to tell a bunch of lies about Nona the Ninth and and how that might be a challenging thing to do. Is there one lie that you can give us? One falsehood that does not happen? Off the dome. (laughs) (laughs) Not to put you on the spot. (laughs) Sorry. I I don't have a lie prepared. Okay. Um, But what I have prepared in my mind is what you know those tumblr posts that are like x spoilers with no context yes <laughs> i don't have it in my head right now but like a couple months ago i was like oh i know exactly what the four images on there will be Ooh. um <laughs> yeah give us one of the images <laughs> uh two of hot sauce <gasps> next to a like a two of hot sauce next to a clock i don't know if that stock image exists like the thing about this is like <laughs> The last time I had this in my head, I was like, I know that that, that some of the like free filtered images that show up, but like uh, that to me is equivalent to the like, this is a big pot of soup uh, thing. Hot sauce. But... I feel like Casey McQuiston got an ARC and posted something about hot sauce. Mm-hmm. Anyway, oh. not going to pressure you anymore. I will <laughs> yeah. go back and look at them myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we should wrap up by moving into bone of the week. Yes. All right. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for agreeing to do a bone of the week with us. This is a silly little segment that we've been doing where every week we quiz each other on bones that come up in this book because there, there sure are a lot of them. And I certainly didn't take the time to look up every bone that came across my pages when I was reading. And then we've been ranking them on sexiness on a scale of one to 10. Whatever your uh, qualifications for what makes a sexy bone are entirely up to you. Uh, you can explain or not explain, but that that is the process we've been going with. So the bone of the week that we've been chosen for you to take a guess at where this is in the human anatomy is the ulna, U-L-N-A. Oh. <gasps> he knows it right away. Yeah, the ulna is easy. The ulna is one of the two bones in the... It, the the ulna is the opposite the radius. Mm-hmm. It's one of the twisty bones, I think, in the forearm. Yes. It was either that or like the the bone in the upper uh, arm. But uh, ulna, there was some very obscure bones. I was I was I was sweating <laughs> coming into this one. We didn't want to get too hard. But ulna, it's got a really nice mouthfeel, which I think is mm-hmm. is worth a few points on itself. 
Uh, forearms are really good. Um, it's involved in a twisting process and also is basically essential for any kind of hand stuff. Oh, that's so true. I'm going to, I'm going to give it a really strong 8.5 sexy bone. 8.5. Oh, right. Okay. Thorough defense. <laughs> I'd say it's the 1.5 is that on its own, I don't think it would be particularly sexy. It's just some like straight bone with a slight bend to it. Yeah. But right. you know, <laughs> for utilitarian purposes, it's a good one. When you have your palm up and your thumb facing laterally, like to the outside, it's the bone that's on the, like towards your body. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Wow, I love that. Amazing. 8.5. Yeah. I think that's our first point five ranking. I, 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 at first I was thinking like, ah, 10 point scale is always too much variability. But then of course <laughs> I had to make it more decimal. No, we want, we want all the bone thoughts. Learning about bones is a great joy of editing. I've even come across new bones in other books. Like I have a book coming up in fall called Leech, which y'all would love. It's a post-apocalyptic body horror, medical horror thing about um, a doctor who is one part of a hive mind that is all doctors. Okay. Trying to figure out why they lost track of a body. It's great. but. Uh, there was this wonderful bone word that I think is like part of the like skull close to the forehead that I need to look up again, but um, they just keep dropping all these bones on me. That's <laughs> like, fantastic. This is your brand now. They're like, we got a bone book. We got to take it to Carl. <laughs> oh, I, I, I thought of something I can say about Nona the Ninth <gasps> that will help nobody, okay. but we love it. But is related to this. I figured out a core metaphysical thing by looking up a term in like cellular biology oh my god oh cellular biology mm-hmm. that's fantastic i'm not a cell biologist i'm an ecologist and evolutionary biologist but now i'm like i'm gonna be on the hunt i'm ready <laughs> yeah yeah well uh, dm me once the book is out if you don't if you don't catch it and i will i will let you know what i was thinking yes all right. please all right perfect that sounds great um well, thank you so much for the little Nona clue there at the end, some, some cellular biology for us to dig into. And thank you, obviously, for, for coming on the podcast and having this chat with us. It's, it's been so, so much fun to get to talk about these books with you. And yeah, we're, we're so appreciative. It's been my pleasure. Thank you again for having me on. Yes. Thanks so much, Carl. Bye. Thanks so much again to Carl for taking the time to join us and share his insights about the series. We had so much fun this week and we hope that you all had fun listening to it as well. You can find us at One Flesh One Pod on Twitter, TikTok, and Tumblr, or drop us an email at onefleshonepod at gmail.com. Feel free to send us questions, send us uh, conspiracy theories that you've just discovered online and want to get some <laughs> thoughts on, or send us your best tips on how you are going to pass the time between now and when Note of the Ninth will finally be in our hands. And we'll see you next week on One Flesh, One End. Okay.